Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what, law, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The word of the Lord. As I was thinking about this morning's passage this week, I was reminded of a, a very weird experience that I had two summers ago as I was living in England. And it was an experience that I, I can imagine only a couple of you have probably uh, experienced before. What happened was that I was watching the opening ceremonies of the 2012 Olympic Games being held in England. They were being held in London, which was about an hour away from where I was at the time I was in Cambridge. And so imagine that for a second. It would be like if you're an American and you were in China in 2008 during the Olympics that were going on in Beijing, and you're watching... Uh, this go on with a room full of Chinese people. It's, it's a very, very strange thing. And there I am, and I'm, I'm surrounded by this huge room full of English people who are watching everything going on on the big screen. And a lot of whom, by the way, if you've ever lived in England, you'll know I, I never saw them express any sense of excitement about being English. There just wasn't an ounce of patriotism about them when I was there. And now all of a sudden, at this one point in the, uh, during the ceremony, they're yelling and they're cheering for England. They're, all, they're excited about the British Empire. You hear one or two people yelling, God save the Queen. And you're looking around like, what is going on? Now, why was that? Why do people in the host country get so excited about the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games? Because the opening ceremony always begins with the same thing doesn't it? It starts with a celebration of the host nation. And so for those first uh, minutes of that night, as the whole world was watching, England had a chance to make a statement. And through, I don't know if you remember what it was like, but through all the, the presentation that they did in the songs and the dances during those opening moments, they had this, this opportunity to say, hey, look at us. Look at England. Look at how great England is to put England's greatness on display and to, to hold it up for the whole world to see and to watch. Now, I'm, I'm very aware that all analogies break down at some point, but with that qualification being said, Paul says in our passage today that the gospel is actually saying something very similar as it speaks about God. In our, in our passage today, we're going to see that the gospel not only rescues us, but as it does, it's actually serving another purpose. And that's drawing the world's attention to something about himself. His righteousness. His righteousness. 
You might have noticed if, when we were looking at our passage just a couple moments ago that it mentions God's righteousness over and over again. It talks about his righteousness, the righteousness of God. And what Paul's doing, is he's reminding us that one of the main purposes of the gospel is to, in fact, proclaim the righteousness of God, to put the righteousness of God on display for everyone in the world to see, to, to wave it like a banner so that his righteousness might be seen it might be recognized, and it might be praised. This morning, we're continuing with a sermon series that you've been in here called Gospel Driven. And if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you know that we're looking together at different passages that describe the gospel or what the Bible says has been done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and today's passage raises an idea that's just critical for anyone who's seeking to learn more about the gospel. Whether you consider yourself here a committed Christian and you come here regularly, or maybe you're someone who's just investigating Christianity. You're just trying to learn more about who this person, Jesus, is. And that's this idea that the gospel isn't just a statement about us. It's not just about us being rescued. It includes that. But it's equally a statement about the greatness of the one who's rescued us. So put it another way. The gospel is not only about reconciliation, Paul shows us. It's equally about proclamation. And if we can't begin to appreciate that, our passage is going to show us, we're never actually going to have a, a, a truly comprehensive understanding of the gospel. We might appreciate what's been done for us, but we just might overlook one of the most important aspects of the gospel, revealing the greatness of the one who's rescued us, the one with whom we're going to be for eternity. And that's a God of righteousness, of holiness, of justice. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to think more about the righteousness of God that Paul is just so adamant about. God's righteousness revealed through the gospel. And we're going to explore it by, uh, by way of considering three things. First, uh, the need for the gospel. Second, the response of the gospel. And lastly, the purpose of the gospel. Again, the need, the response, and the purpose. So first, the need for the gospel. And as we were just saying a moment ago, what Paul's trying to do in this passage today is he's, he's drawing our attention to the righteousness of God. It's, it's like as if he's taking a, a, a giant spotlight, like the kind that you'd normally see in the back of a room like this, in the back of a theater, and he's shining it on the gospel. He's shining on it on what's been done for us in Jesus. And he's saying, look at what this shows us about God. Look at how great he is. But... We're never going to understand why that makes God look so great unless we can first grasp just how badly the gospel was needed. And if you're familiar with Romans, you'll know that that's one of the main things that Paul has been writing about so far in this letter. So why was it needed? What's it mean to say that there was a need for the gospel? That the gospel was necessary? 
Now, I recognize for a lot of us that sounds kind of like an abstract theological question. So maybe we can uh, work towards an answer by asking a little bit more of a uh, practical question, though it's still slightly philosophical, or maybe mostly. It's a question every one of us needs to have an answer to, whether we claim to be a Christian, or maybe we're agnostic, or maybe we're a convinced atheist. And that question is this. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? Have you ever thought about that question? Why is it that the world looks so differently than the way we might hope that it would look? (coughs) Pardon me. Why is there so much suffering? You know, why is there so much division? Why is there so much need? You know, just think about all the things that we've seen on the the news lately. Think about all the fighting that we've seen uh, between Israel and Gaza for the last couple weeks. All the people that have died. Think about the political climate here in Washington. You know, think about all the acrimony, all the division. There's just, there's this paralysis as as we just can't seem to make any progress. You know, think about uh, the thousands of immigrant children on the border that we're trying to figure out how to care for, what's, what's the best way. You know, no matter where we stand on the political spectrum, if we, lead, if we lean more towards a conservative political position or, or maybe more towards a, a more liberal political position, we can all agree on this. Those things need solutions. Those are problems that need to be resolved. Those things aren't going the way that we would hope. And that's just out there. You know, think about, think about your own life. And just, and just one example, you know, think about, think about the amount of uh, conflict that we experience in relationships. You know, students, maybe the experience that you have, the conflict that you have with your friends at school, or maybe in our families with our siblings, or with our parents. We never seem to grow out of that, do we, for a lot of us? Or maybe conflict that you've had uh, with your own spouse, or with, with friends, people that uh, you work alongside at your place of employment. You know, so much brokenness, so much brokenness out there, so much brokenness in here, in our own lives. And when we finish a long day and we're just crawling into bed and we're thinking about all the stress of the day and all of the problems, we we just got to ask ourselves, you know, where's that come from? What's going on there? What's the root of all these things? Have you ever thought about that? You know, if, if, you're, if you take yourself seriously, uh, uh, intellectually, if you, if you think of yourself as a thoughtful person, uh, it's a reflective person, it's, it's a question that you have to ask. It's a question that you've you got to have some sort of working hypothesis toward. What's wrong with the world? Now, this question, it's a question that a lot of people, as you probably know, have tried to answer in different ways. All kinds of different ways. So for some people, it's, it's primarily primarily a political issue, and, and there's this sense that if only we could get uh, the right leaders with the right uh, uh, political philosophies into office, and then we could implement the right things, then all of our problems might be minimized. Or for other people, it's mainly an issue of human rights, and there's this sense of, you know, if, if only we could guarantee all people around the world that we, that we can maximize their individual freedoms, then a lot of our biggest issues uh, would be solved. You know, for, for some people, it's, a, it's an economic issue. 
they see through these problems and they see economic problems. And they think if, if only we could put into place some sort of a fair uh, and a reasonable economic system, then we'd be able to mitigate a lot of the problems that we have in the world. Now, these things are good things. These aren't things that, these are things that Christians should actually be involved with. But the Bible says that they all actually have the same misdiagnosis. They all assume that the problem's out there. But according to the Bible, the answer to the question, what's wrong with the world, the answer doesn't start out there. It starts in here. Or as it has often been said about the way that the, the Bible diagnoses this problem, the heart of the, pu- of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The problem's not them, Paul's been saying in Romans. It's what the Bible calls sin, our rejection of God as the rightful ruler of the world and our, our desire to replace him with ourselves, to do things our way rather than his way. That, that's how Paul's answered this question so far in the book of Romans. If you're at all familiar with uh, Romans chapters 1 and 2, he spent a lot of time reminding two very different groups of people, the Jews and the non-Jews, the Gentiles, that no matter how different they are, no matter how much division they think they have between them, they're all suffering from the same ailment, the same problem. That's the problem of a human heart, wanting to live under our own rule rather than God's rule. And Paul says, this is, this is a problem every one of us is guilty of. No matter how nice we are, no matter how hard we try to be a good person, every one of us guilty. Would you put up our first several verses? Would you go back to three? Uh, tw- there we go right there. That's why Paul can say with such confidence, look at verse 23. This is a verse that many of you have heard before. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us, Paul says, caught in the same predicament. And it's the same reason that uh, many years ago, the, the British newspaper, The Times, it sent out a letter to the country's leading authors, and it asked them, it posed them this question, what's wrong with the world? And many of you have heard this. They got a, a brief letter mailed back to them from G.K. Chesterton, the, the famous British author and literary critic who also happened to be a Christian And there was this handwritten letter with his lengthy diagnosis. And he said, Dear Sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. And you know, this idea, this idea that we are are all caught up in this is sin. I got to admit, it's not a way that I like to think of myself. I'd like to think of myself as a great person, as a good person. I've tried really hard. But it's true, you know, when I think about the things that I think, about myself and, and about other people, I have to admit that it's, it's true. You know, it's accurate about me. And I'm guessing that it's, a lot of accurate, it's accurate for a lot of other people here too. You know, what's so fascinating about this Christian claim about sin is that it includes good news and bad news. And so the good news is that one day, God's going to right every wrong, the Bible says. Every form of injustice in the world is going to be made right. 
And I don't know about you, but that's, that's personally a great relief to me that every kind of evil we can imagine, greed and exploitation and abuse and corruption, anything that deviates from the way that we might hope life would look, from God's great design for us as people and deviating from his design for the world, for his creation, all these things, the Bible says, are going to be done away with once and for all. You know, I don't think you have to be a Christian to identify with that. Don't we all want a God like that? Who's going to do that? But here's the bad news. That list of wrongs that is going to be judged, that includes my wrongs. Includes your wrongs. It includes us. And so we can't get this God that we all want, this God of righteousness, the God of Christianity without recognizing that it puts all of us in the same predicament. And that's a need for rescue. Every one of us, according to Paul, equally guilty and equally needy. That's our first point this morning, the need of the gospel. But what's amazing about our God, this this God of the scriptures, is that he's not indifferent to people. He loves people. And he's passionate about people. And he's so passionate, it says, that he actually steps into history, into time, and into space in order to provide the only resolution that could fix things. The, The death, the sacrificial death of his son Jesus. And that takes us to our second point this morning. And that's the response of the gospel. You know, what's amazing about the gospel is it actually challenges a lot of the misconceptions that people have about uh, the God of the Bible. You know, there's a lot of people who hear about Christianity, and this might be some of us here, and whether it's because of something that maybe a well-intended Christian tried to say to us, or maybe as part of our upbringing in a a Christian community or or a Christian school. You know, aren't there some people that think that this this Christian God, uh, they hear about him and they almost uh, equate him with a a caricature that you often hear of, like a a mean school principal. You know, that's always out to get people. Always looking for us to, to break the rules and to put us in detention. You know, but when we look at our passage today, and when, when you consider how God responded to our situation, that couldn't be any further from the truth. That's not the God of the gospel. That's not the God that we're reading about. He's a loving God, and he wants us to be in relationship with him. He's not out to scold us. He's gracious. And so when he sees us in, his, in our need, he can't help but respond in the only way that was necessary, even at great cost to himself. Now, let's, let's look at how Paul shows us this in this passage uh, this morning. And as we do, remember what Paul's been saying. He's talking about the righteousness of God being made known. And he says it was specifically put on display for the world to see through an event. That was an event of the cross. He says we are in need of the gospel, We've all sinned. And then look with me at how Paul uh, described the way that God responds in verses 24 through 25. Thank you. Note when he says, And are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, I know a lot of big words there for a second. There's a lot going on. But let's just take a second and let's look together at those two verses. If you would leave those out there for just a second. You know, this is, this is almost like what we could call gospel dynamite. Like those are two, two of the most packed verses in the Bible. And if you're here this morning and you're needing at all just a little bit of a refresher of what Christianity is about, or, or if you're, again, if you're visiting and you're learning more about who Jesus is, this is the right place to be parked in these two verses. So first, look at 25. Okay, Paul's talking about Jesus. And he says that God put him forward. Okay, let's just stop there. Put him forward. So we've all sinned, Paul says. We've made our mess. But God refuses to leave us there. He, he won't leave us helpless. He's a God who responds. And he looks at you, and he looks at me, and he sees our situation, and he refuses, he refuses to leave us in our helplessness. Now let's continue on. Look at the following words next. As a propitiation by his blood. Okay, so we've said that God decides to move, and then, Paul says, there's an action, and then there's a consequence. Now, the action is the blood. That, that's referring to the death of Jesus, the death of his only son on the cross. Now, what's the consequence? That's the propitiation. Okay, now, propitiation is uh, a less common word. Uh, it's probably not a word that many of you have said in the last couple of days. If you have said it, that makes you really weird because it means you must have been in seminary or been doing some other sort of reading. But that's just really a less common word that simply means the satisfying of God's anger, his good and his holy anger against all rebellion against him, all sin and injustice. And so God's anger that was once directed at us is now satisfied in Jesus' death. So we've seen God decides to move. He gives his son on the cross. He satisfied his anger that was directed at us, at you, at me. And then look at what it says at the end of verse 24. Look at what that says. It's to be received by faith. By faith. So in other words, all these things that God's done for us, coming to our rescue, righting our wrongs, putting us back into a relationship with him, these are all things received by faith. We can't earn it, he says. We couldn't earn it even if we wanted to earn it. And I'm guessing there's a lot of us here who would like to try to earn it. But we can't. You know, we can't do enough things. We can't go to church enough or, or pray enough or, or do, be involved in enough Bible studies or new, do enough uh, philanthropic works. We just can't earn it. It's a gift. That's what Paul says in 24. Did you notice that? He says it's a gift. All we have to do is believe. That's why it's called the gospel. And I'm sure Johnny's told you before that the Greek word for that, euangelion, that, that's simply a word that means good news. 
And the reason that that's good news is because if those things are true, which they are, it means that anybody can have it. Anybody. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. All because of how God responded to our need. And that's our second point this morning, the response of the gospel. And now for our last point this morning, the purpose of the gospel. And so Paul's shown us how we were in need. Uh, God responded with the sun and with the cross. And now we can step back and we can ask ourselves, okay, so what's the purpose? What was God hoping to do in that? And when we read our, our passage today, we find Paul says something incredible. This is something that's mind-blowing. One of the main purposes of the gospel is to reveal the righteousness of God. Did you notice how many times our passage passage today mentions God's righteousness? Let's look at our passage again on the screen. Could you go to the first bit, 21 uh, through 24? Thank you. So how does Paul introduce the gospel here? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, or just it's been made known. It's been revealed apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith. Or would you go to the next group of verses? The second half of 25. Why does God put forward his son for us? Paul says, this was to show God's righteousness. And then again, look at the beginning of 26. It was to show his righteousness. Over and over again, Paul's talking about the death of Jesus in the context of demonstrating or vindicating the righteousness of God. Now, here's here's another way of putting that. How many of you have ever been to Virginia Beach? No no one. Okay, lots of people. Great. I grew up in Virginia Beach. Uh, Maybe you've been to Virginia Beach or another tourist town like that, and what do you see when you're at the beach up in the air? You know, you see these, these small planes that are flying along the waterfront, and they're pulling these huge advertisements. And often there's something on there about some sort of a, a, a tourist shop or maybe a, a theme park or a restaurant. And it, and it says something like, in, this is in huge letters, two-for-one blue crabs at Nick's Wednesdays. And these planes fly along the beach just for miles And why do they do that? They do it with the sole purpose of making sure that that message, that Nick's has blue crabs on Wednesdays, is seen and acknowledged by as many people as possible. And what Paul is saying here is is actually something very similar. You you know, it's almost as if you could say the gospel is like a little airplane, and it's, it's towing behind it a banner for all the world to see. But it's not advertising a restaurant or a theme park. It's proclaiming for everyone to see the righteousness of God. In other words, Paul says that the gospel, the event of the cross in our redemption, it was intended to put on display before the entire world his righteousness, his holiness, his justice. Now, at this point, I hope you're asking, 
So what? So what? Why does it matter that God shows us his righteousness? And the reason it matters is this. Because when Paul says that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, what he's telling us is that this God, the God who's rescued us, that's created us, and, and this God that the Bible says that we can know through faith, this God is more just and more holy than any of us could ever imagine. Think about that for a second. He's a God who writes every wrong. He's utterly perfect in character. And how do we know that's true? How, how did he prove that? Where have we seen it? Paul says we saw it in the, in the death of Jesus Christ as the payment for sin. To show us the righteousness of God. That's the purpose of the gospel. As we close this morning, I want to address just two groups of you that I know that are here. First, to, to most of you who are here, who are Christians, you know, think about this passage today. Think about the, God, the gospel teaching us about God, revealing his righteousness. And now think about the gospel. You know, being as, as sinful and as broken and as needy as we, wa- we are. And now think about the fact that we've been brought into an intimate relationship with him. Ask yourself, is that at all surprising you? And do you find it at all strange that this God of perfect holiness can say to you or, or uh, to me, to Corky, to, to, to Matt, you know what, Matt, I know you. I know you more than you know yourself. And not only do I, I know you and I accept you, I love you. And I love you with the same love that I have for my own son. If you don't feel at least the slightest sense of wonder or surprise by that, what I want to do is, would you, can I just encourage you to consider praying about that? Maybe sometime this evening or sometime this week. And maybe to say something like, God, you know, would you convince me of your holiness and of your righteousness? And and would you give me a a sobering sense of who I am outside of you? And then would you strike me afresh with the wonder that you not only accept me, but that you love me? And would you consider praying that? That's you, Christians. Maybe there are just, maybe even just one or two of you who who are visiting here today, and you're just checking out who this Jesus is, what Christianity is about. And here's what I want to ask you. Consider these two things. First, remember that this, this God that the Bible talks about is more righteous than you could ever imagine. Okay, so, so take someone that you know in your life that you think of as being really good, or, or maybe even they feel like, feels like they're perfect. Maybe a mentor, or maybe a a parent, maybe some sort of hero that you have from history. And now imagine somehow quantifying that goodness and multiplying it by infinity, if you could even do that. Because that's how holy the God of Christianity is, the Bible's saying. So consider that, and now consider this. The fact that no matter what you've done, 
no matter how much you, you've uh, made fun of Christians or, or made fun of God or mocked him, this, this perfect, infinitely righteous God, he wants you to know him. And not only that, but he actually wants to make you righteous. He wants to give you his righteousness. Paul said in our passage today, it's a completely free gift. All you have to do is believe. Would you consider doing that? Let's pray. Father, we we praise you for the gift of your son and thank you for what it teaches us about you, about your righteousness. And please, would you indeed hit us afresh with this, with your holiness, and how shocking it is that you would engage us. And please strengthen us and help us to honor you in response. In Jesus' name, amen. see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design in the lives of those who prove his faithfulness who walk by faith and not by sight by faith our fathers roam the Faith and not by sight.